understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way. Seeing through them also. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everybody. Welcome to the December edition of Beers, the Blue Level Space Institute of Science. My name is Sanjoy Som, and this month we have a special for you. We are live in San Francisco for the American Geophysical Union. It's a yearly conference that brings together 20,000 Earth scientists at the Moscone Center in San Francisco during the first week of December. And uh, what I'm hoping to do this month is to give you a feel of what it's like to be at AGU. So we're going to talk to journalists, we're going to talk to students, to scientists, to exhibitors, and hopefully get a sense as to what this crazy conference is all about. So first off, we go to the third floor of Bosconi West, to the press office, and here are the characters I bumped into. Uh, my name's Tia Ghosh, I'm a live science staff writer. So I'm Jonathan Amos, and I'm a science correspondent with BBC. Molly Bentley, uh, I'm executive producer of a radio show and podcast called Big Picture Science. So obviously the journalists are in town to cover the latest stories and the discoveries that are happening in earth science, but I was more interested in the human aspect as to why they were interested in meeting the scientists themselves. Here's Tia as an answer. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, sometimes the, the papers aren't the most digestible. And then on top of that, I think that there's a lot of interesting, the backstory, why is it important, why does it matter, that gets buried when you read the paper. Um, and a lot of times there are just like these fascinating stories um, behind what what questions are answering. They're very important, but like it, it doesn't come through unless you talk to people. So. Yeah, so it's true that scientific papers today tend to be rather dry. It's all about giving context, describing how the data is obtained, establishing a hypothesis, and defending that hypothesis. But the exciting stories about how the data was obtained is what tends to be missing. So I asked Molly why she wants to hear those stories. Because I think it humanizes science. Um, this will be obvious maybe to you as a scientist, but scientists are human. And often the human story gets ironed out of their science. They come and they often what the public gets are is the science or the set of data points, and that's not telling the story. And if you meet a scientist and you can talk to them as another human and get them to tell the story, the narrative of, um, of their science, why it's important, what it means to um, the rest of the world. And then also you might even be able to get from them some of their own personality and some of their passion. And you can't do that any other way but when you talk to a scientist face to face. Ah, so scientists are not just soulless data explaining machines. Ah, what a concept. Finally, I asked Jonathan where he gets his news, because news in our days is found everywhere. So do you have to really pay attention to all those different sources? Yeah, I mean, yeah, everybody kind of operates everywhere now, don't they? Um, you know, from, from the journal papers, the scholarly papers, right through to, uh, to Twitter, I guess, is, is one extreme, isn't it? Um, just those 140 characters. I follow a lot of scientists on, uh, on Twitter, um, and uh, we communicate via Twitter, and I'm interested to follow the things that they're doing. So, yeah, it's, it's, you, you do have to be careful the way you say things. You really do, because people can get the wrong end of the stick, and, and then when the thing starts snowballing, well, hey, it's, it's very difficult to stop it. So moral of the story is that both scientists and journalists have to be quite careful about how they communicate the science so that it's not misinterpreted. Next, I wanted to get the student perspective, and to get that, I had to head to the local watering holes, which can get quite loud. So bear with me as I talk to... Uh, Cayman Unterborn. 
And where are you at? I'm at Ohio State University. Ohio State University. Tell me what you do. So uh, I'm a, an astronomer by training, but I'm a graduate student in an Earth Science Department, and I'm looking to uh, understand the interaction between uh, what a star's composition is and what resulting planets might be out of that, and what if those planets will be dynamic and if that will lead to habitability. Can you go in a little bit more detail in terms of the dynamics? Sure. Uh, so, uh, well, the current project I presented this year at AGU was looking at the distribution of radioactive elements in the galaxy. So radioactive elements in the Earth are one of the main energy sources for driving mantle convection. And from what we're learning, mantle convection is necessary for plate tectonics. And there's a, de there's a delicate role between plate tectonics and... Uh, surface oceans and being able to sustain surface oceans and so uh, being able to have enough of an energy budget to sustain a dynamic planet is important to understanding whether that planet will end up being habitable over geologic timescales. So Cayman, tell me about your sleeves. Alright, so uh, when I was an undergrad, I, on top of my physics and astronomy degree, I minored in art history. And uh, I'm a big Star Wars nerd, so uh, I wanted to combine the two. So the theme are Star Wars pinups, but in various art history styles. So uh, yeah, it's sort of three layers of nerd in one tattoo. It's so awesome. <laughs> Gosh, my ears are still ringing from that night. But uh, as I was leaving, I bumped to Michelle. My name is Michelle Hopkins. I am at the University of Colorado in Boulder and currently at the Chieftain at the drinking wine. Wonderful. So you used to be a philosopher. I did. I, 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 loved, I loved writing and I loved reading about how people thought. Uh, but then one day... Uh, the, uh, at Cal State LA, I ran into the head of the geology department at a coffee shop. And I always had a love for science, so my grandparents founded the first Jeff and Rock Association in Pasadena, California. And so when I was a child, we were always playing with rocks. They had like all the ones that would fluoresce in UV light, and it was really interesting. So I always had a passion for science. But anyways, I mean, not a very complicated story. I ran into him. He said, sounds like you have a real passion for science. You should come and take some geology courses. Um, I was supplementing there at the time, taking philosophy classes, waiting for my acceptance at UCLA. And so I said, okay, great. Let's, I went to go take some classes. I had a really fun time taking a structure class and a geology class. And I fell in love with it. I like, changed my major like two days before the deadline for my application. And the rest is history. Rock on, Michelle. <laughs> Michelle's story just shows that you don't have to start college in science to end up being a scientist, which is quite inspiring. So at a more civilized watering hole, the Skyview Lounge at the 39th floor of the Marriott Hotel, I bumped into a volcanologist. My name is Enrique Quartini, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm trying to understand how the activity of subglacial volcanoes, so volcanoes beneath thick ice, controls the behavior of, of ice streams and ice caps. Um, so, and how they contribute to produce more melt water and lubricate this, the surface, the bedrock topography. And this kind of work requires fieldwork. Have you done some fieldwork in some exciting places? Yeah, 
I did. I had some field work experience in Antarctica last last season. I was in Antarctica for about two months and a bit. It was really exciting. We we flew over some amazing glaciers uh, with our DC3. Uh, with a lot of equipment, if, um, two radiograms, two laser altimeters, uh, a gravity meters, and a mag magnetometer, and of course a camera to take pictures, pretty pictures. Mm -hmm. And um, what what work are you presenting here at AGU? Uh, we are presenting heterogeneous geothermal flux in West Antarctica and implications for uh, yeah, meltwater distribution in the, in the subsurface. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter where in San Francisco you are during the week of AGU, you are bound to bump into geoscientists with really extraordinary stories. Heck, I was at this loud Indian restaurant that I bumped into this fascinating person. My name is Frank Santanello, and I'm a grad student at MIT. I try to help people uh, figure out the internal composition of asteroids. Asteroids? Whoa, I had to learn more. What specifically are you presenting at AGU? How to compute the trajectory of a spacecraft, and then how to use that data to uh, uh, determine the gravity field and the internal composition of asteroids. So it's interesting that you used to be an engineer and then now you're a planetary scientist. How did that transition happen? Um, actually, it's, it's really nice because the skills are really transferable. Um, I, I started out in aerospace engineering. You learn all the uh, necessary math and physics to be able to compute the trajectories of aircraft and spacecraft. Um, and generally, what engineers are trying to do is uh, improve methodology. Um, but on the science side, they use the methodology to, to turn around and do science with it. So um, having had all that background, I could easily walk into a scientific field. I'll spare you the details of the inverse theory he solves to deduce the interior composition of an asteroid based on the deviations of the spacecraft orbiting around it. Incredible. So next I was on my way to the poster session when I uh, bumped into my friend Twyla from graduate school. I'm Twyla Moon and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Washington in Seattle. Um, so Twyla, when you talk to your grandmother about what you're doing, like how do you describe the big picture of your science? So I study the Greenland ice sheet and I study how the ice changes so speeding up or slowing down and what kind of patterns we see over multiple years. So looking at the ice, you can also make some inferences about climate, right? I think it's one of the major motivation for what you're doing. Yeah, kind of a two-way street. So the ice might tell you something about climate and climate might tell you something about ice. And we're really interested in how the ice sheet is interacting with the ocean and with the atmosphere. So as we think about the changes that are coming with climate change, what do we really expect to happen out of the ice sheet? Because that's a major source of sea level rise. So what tools do you do to do your research? Do you go to uh, Greenland? Do you use satellite data? Can you tell us a little bit about that? I use all satellite data at this point. There's a lot of different really interesting data sets out there. And we really at this point have a lot of data and maybe not enough people to look at them. So there's free data sets that I can go or you can go and download off the internet and get busy doing some science. That's wonderful. I thought it was good to hear from Twyla, although I'm still bitter she beat me at curling all these years ago. Yes, I just said curling. So I would like to emphasize a little bit on what Twyla said. A lot of the data sets that scientists use are in fact freely available on the internet. It doesn't matter if you're studying the topography of Mars or the bottom of the ocean. A lot of that data is on the internet. So I finally made it to the poster session. How to even start describing this place. It's a huge hall with 
Rows after rows after rows after rows of posters, people everywhere talking, laughing, shouting at each other. Actually, that's not true. They're quite civil at EGU because at 3 o'clock, the conference serves beer, so everybody's in a good mood. So I got a chance to talk to a few scientists and listen uh, what kind of science they do. My name is Emily Pope. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Natural History Museum of Denmark, which is associated with the University of Copenhagen. So I'm cheating a little bit here because Emily, like me, is a deep-time geologist. I mean, just listen what kind of work she does. It's awesome. The work that I do is uh, aimed towards trying to understand how Earth has evolved since its origin. And we want to know that because we want to know why life evolved on Earth and how it evolved on Earth. And the way you know that is by understanding what the environment looked like with time. And so that's what we're trying to get at, is kind of the surrounding environment where life first originated. And from what I understand about your research, you spent a lot of time in very awesome places. Could you describe a little bit some of your field experiences? Yeah, the last three summers I've gotten to do field work in Greenland. It is a fantastically beautiful and remote place. We get to take two airplanes, a boat, and a helicopter to get out to our field site. And then we're in the middle of nowhere for about 10 days where all we get to do is look at rocks and think about early life. So it's essentially a laboratory to study Earth in its most ancient past, is that right? Absolutely. Wow. Isn't that the most awesome thing you've ever heard? I wanted more detail. Well, the work that I'm presenting here is um, supposed to help models for what climate looked like in the ancient world. So a lot of approaches to understanding environments in early Earth are based on what we think should have happened where we use computer models and observations about modern-day climates and kind of project backwards. And the reason we do that is because we don't have a lot of information, a lot of detailed geologic information from early on on Earth. And so we've got to kind of guess what was happening. And so what I was trying to do is say, like, okay, well, let's look at all of the geologic data that we actually do have, and let's look at it very closely and make sure we understand what it says, and then see if we can put limits on all of the models that we're doing so that we're not just guessing what could have happened, but we actually have evidence for what did happen. Mind blown. I just had to ask her to paint us a picture of how Earth was three billion years ago. Well, the first thing that would happen is if you're standing on a proto-continent three billion years ago, you probably would be underwater. Um, what we do know is that the oceans were probably much bigger and uh, what continents were here were probably either just at sea level or just below sea level because continental crust was hotter and so it couldn't rise to make really large mountain ranges. Um, another thing is you wouldn't be breathing very well because at that time what we do know is there was very little oxygen in the air. There probably was a lot more CO2 in the air and there probably was also a lot more methane in the air because... So, so that kept the planet warm because the sun was fainter, right? Right. So the CO2 and the methane is hopefully what was compensating for the fact that you had a cooler sun at that time. There's still a lot of debate for how much CO2 there was or how much the sun caused it to be cooler and whether or not you'd be freezing while you were standing on your protocontinent or whether you'd be burning up because it'd be so toasty warm. And that is where a lot of the modeling is trying to resolve the picture at this point. I then went to a particularly rowdy section of the poster session where the deep life session was currently ongoing because I wanted to understand more clearly the relationship between studying life on Earth and how that could apply to life on Mars, for example. And I found the perfect person to talk to. 
Billy Braselton. I work at East Carolina University. So I study a process called serpentinization, which is a long word for a, a reaction in which a rock called olivine turns into a rock called serpentine. And we think that's interesting because it produces lots of energy and food for microbes. So you get free energy and free food by reacting a rock with water. So that's pretty close to a, a free lunch, at least as close as you can possibly get. And so we're wondering if that can support life in weird places on Earth as well as other planets. Has serpentine been uh, discovered on Mars? Yes, in fact, there is serpentine and olivine on Mars, and there's a lot of reason to think that serpentinization is going on in Mars uh, right this second. And if that process supports life on Earth, then we're wondering why can't it support life on Mars. But all we see on the surface of Mars is past evidence of liquid water. Is there anything, any evidence that there's liquid water in the subsurface? That's true. First of all, past life would still be pretty interesting to find. The surface does look pretty dead. So on Earth, serpentinization mostly happens on the subsurface, actually. So if I was going to look for serpentinization on Mars, I'd want to look underneath the surface. So you might not even have to get very deep. Maybe only a few meters underneath the surface, you'll find a lot of serpentinization going on, and that's where I would look for life. Serpentinization. That's a big word, Dr. Brazelton, but my appetite is whetted. The fact that he can really say something quantitative between geology and biology through this chemical reaction is really fascinating. Thankfully, I ran into Dr. Don Cardace, who is a professor of geoscience at the University of Rhode Island. And so I asked her, what is the product of this serpentinization reaction and why is it important? Um, it's a rock called serpentinite. It's a rock made mostly of serpentine minerals. And it's the product of a chunk of our mantle uh, reacting with water over long periods of time. This has ties to life? Yes. In fact, um, this morning at this very conference, I was listening to a number of talks by fellow, fellow scientists studying serpentinites, particularly for the life that they hold. So modern Earth has life in these kinds of rocks, organisms that can exist at extremely high pHs on the order of 11 or 12, so like household bleach with very strange metal loads and also very little carbon for them to metabolize. Um, so we're learning about extreme life on Earth by studying these environments. Um, and actually, these kind of rocks are candidates for the cradle of all life on Earth. So many believe that if you're looking for a place to have that very first cell or twine together that very first DNA, that places to go include the deep sea because you can have a sheltered environment um, down in the base of the ocean um, and there's lots of chemical energy to be had and so on. Um, and with recent observations on the surface of Mars detecting these very same rocks, um, there's sort of tantalizing potential for comparison. Whoa. So it's amazing that rocks hold so much information up to the point where you can start discussing the origin of life. But gosh, that's enough science for me right now. I'm heading to the exhibit hall. So the exhibit hall is also a huge hall with a bunch of exhibitors, obviously, from instrument makers to booksellers to jewelers to universities, all describing their products for uh, geoscientists who are there to find out about new products, but also to do their Christmas shopping, turns out. So here I am at the IRIS booth. It's a consortium of universities who study seismology, so the science of earthquakes, and I think that's their big cheese here. My name is Andrew Forsetto, I go by Andy, and I am a project associate at the Incorporated Research Institutions for Seismology. I'm a research seismologist by trade. I work for IRIS, which is an organization that uh, collects and distributes seismic data on behalf of the seismological research community. 
and uh, we've been in operation for about 25 plus years, and we hope to be for a long time in the future. And so you have a booth here at AGU for uh, IRIS. Um, why is it important for you to come and meet the scientists face to face? Well, there's a lot of different members of the community. There's people who are interested in educational outreach, people who are interested in the technical data that we obtain. And uh, I've been fortunate enough that I've worked in a lot of these programs over the years. So I'm happy to put in booth time if I'm uh, going to get a chance to interact with some of the people in the community. And the interview got cut short because we were distracted by beverages since it was 3 o'clock. Also got distracted by the big NASA sign. NASA has one of the largest booths here at AGU, so I couldn't help myself but to go talk to one of their exhibitors. My name is Romeo Durscher, and I work on NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory, which is our latest eye on the sun. And uh, I do uh, education and public outreach, and I do social media. So why is it important for you to come to AGU? Oh, there are several reasons. Number one, um, it's, it's great to go out and, and learn about the science of other disciplines as well, especially for us sun people, because the sun has such a big impact on other divisions of science. So it's always great to do a little bit of cross-reference. But then it's also meeting scientists and friends from all over the world and, and sitting down and talking a little bit about their latest adventures. And then uh, I also get to work the NASA booth, which is always a great time. So it's, it's overall a, always a good experience. Could you tell us more about your uh, social media efforts to communicate heliophysics to the public? Yes, that's actually, you know, social media has become such a great tool to really reach out and at least spark the interest. Uh, sometimes it doesn't take all that much to get someone curious and then they can uh, learn up or read up a little bit more. But what we at SDO are trying to do is we're trying to really be engaging with the audience. So we don't just want to share one way, we want to hear back, we want to engage, we want to answer questions. So it's a little bit of a different approach and we're using some different tools too. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, Camilla? Camilla the rubber chicken, yes. Hey, we have a mascot for SDO, and that's Camilla Corona SDO. She's a rubber chicken, but no ordinary rubber chicken. She actually talks about the sun, space weather, and uh, most importantly, she breaks down the barrier between the public and the science. Um, it's actually really fascinating to see a mascot uh, reach out and grab people's attention right off the bat and then uh, it's much easier to educate them a little bit more. Can people follow Camilla on Twitter or Facebook? Camilla is everywhere. Camilla is on Facebook, she's on Twitter, she's on YouTube, she's on Google+, Instagram, Foursquare, you name it. Just do a search for Camilla SDO, Solar Dynamics Observatory, and you find all uh, her little outlets. And, 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 you know, we try to put fun into science because so, so many people are afraid of science, but in, in reality it's actually a lot of fun to do science, and we want to really show that you can do it yourself. What wonderful words to end this podcast with. I hope you enjoyed this whirlwind tour of the American Geophysical Union Conference. I couldn't help but ask all the people I interviewed what was their beverage of choice at conference, just to show you that this podcast is not necessarily badly named. So, what is it? Beer. Beer. Coffee. Beer. 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 Wine. Margarita. Beer. Wine. Chai. Chai? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Happy holidays, everybody. See you in February for the next edition of Beers with the Blue Bubble Space Institute of Science. Until then, so long. See you, everyone. Bye. Bye.
cases of private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives. Thank you.